I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You love me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Love is certainly not an easy game, or is it? Today's guests. Matthew and Orna Walters have helped thousands of couples around the globe find love and compatibility. As seen on The Millionaire Matchmaker, Matthew and Orna Walters say that love is an inside job and it's never too late to find the love of your life. Matthew and Orna, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. I'm so excited to connect with the two of you today. We're so excited to connect with you. I love that we just put this together. Twitter is the best, right? Yeah. Yeah. What happens when you show up to a date after you've been talking to somebody for months and it's a complete mismatch? Oh, the thing is, is you shouldn't be talking for months before you meet them in person because nothing, say with me, nothing nothing is real until you meet in person. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It's all in your head. You got to meet in person. You don't know if you have any connection at all until you meet. Do you think some people are unmatchable? Oh, no. There's a lid for every pot. Absolutely. 100%. What do you think, Matthew? I think some people have so many guardrails around their heart that it's difficult for them to meet people. But if they're willing to do the work to let go of whatever hurt, pain they're holding on to, that yeah, there's totally a lid for every pot. Interesting. Now, you have a little bit of a background in hypnosis, right? Yes. That's a big part of my training. That's actually what got us started in all of this. I had a hypnosis client who came to me because she was obsessed with this guy who was this artist she was dating, and he was totally toxic. And she had been sober for like 20 years, and he would leave open bottles of alcohol around. And then he dumped her like really cruelly, and yet she couldn't stop obsessing about it. And she's like, I know he's terrible, and yet I can't stop thinking about wanting to get him back. For me, that was one of the big impetuses for the work we do about why do people get stuck like that? Why does that happen? And for me, it was just nobody could help me. I didn't know I wanted to be partnered up. You know, I was very invested in my career and very focused there. And I had a spiritual awakening. I started meditating. And honestly, at the end of my meditation, I would ask, what do I really want? And the answer would always come. It said love. And the first time I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I don't know how to do this. Like, no, uh uh-uh. 
uh, 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 right? And then it would come again and again and again and again. And then when I set out like, okay, how do I do that? You know, first off, the thing that really bothered me is the general advice out there is, oh, just find somebody from a good family, which terrified me because then I realized that no one would pick me because I don't come from a good family. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? How our family comes into play and who we end up with or date or pick? It has everything to do with who we pick, who we think we are connecting with. So the brain science of attraction is a lot of what we work with. Basically, our mind is designed for us to survive, which is a pretty low bar, right? <laughs> like We're just here to keep you alive, like make sure your heart's pumping that blood, your brain is firing synapses, and that's really the low bar. And so our brain will literally bring us familiar experiences, no matter what you've been through. It highlights the familiar because whatever you've been through, you're still alive today. So that basic part of our mind, which is the best computer on earth, right? It says, well, you know, if I give Orna more of the same circumstances, more of the same situations, she'll continue to survive, right? That makes sense by deduction. Yeah, we call it the law of association where your subconscious says, well, this is like that. And so if this is like that, it's familiar. And I'm going to highlight that for you because you need more of the same in order to survive. Because what is known is comfortable and what is unknown is uncomfortable. Even if what is known is not comfortable emotionally, <laughs> right? Even if it's frustrating, if it's heartbreaking or if it's toxic or, if or, it's unhealthy. Toxic or unhealthy it's known and so the subconscious says more of that and this all starts when we're little babies coming into the world we always say it's like a newborn baby is like the physical embodiment of the energy of love they have no inherent blocks to receiving love have you ever been around a newborn baby they give love freely they receive love just like a puppy or a kitten right it's like love is so free and open with them and yet we learn very quickly in our family of origins that love is conditional in some way. We have these experiences where, so that little baby needs to feel loved and needs to feel safe in order to survive and thrive in the world. Besides physical needs being met, we actually need to feel loved and we need to feel safe. And we'll do anything to make sure we feel loved and safe. We'll take on any belief, any strategy that allows us to fit into the system we're born into in order to feel loved and safe. Is this making sense for you? I'm like, the whole world needs more love right now. Yes. How can we bring that about? It's honestly, it's our big mission. It's our biggest mission in life to bust the myth that love just happens by accident. Because what, what we're talking about is a false positive. Like I'm a survivor of domestic violence. It's October and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I I didn't understand how that happened to me. It was... You know, those physical wounds were bad. Like they took a while to heal. But what was in my head took so long because I was like, how did that happen? Like, how did I choose someone who would harm me when that's the last thing I wanted? And now I understand that for me, love and pain were intertwined. That on some level, I knew that that guy fit the model of what I learned in my family home. And so he was highlighted for me. Like I was drawn to him like a bee to honey. I mean, I, I just was like, you know, I was all lit up, whatever, however you want to call that thing. When people, it terrifies me when people say things like, oh, when you know, you know, because I thought I knew and it was the worst decision I ever made in my life. And it's this idea that it's just going to magically happen, right? We're all taught that everything we should have in life, you should get educated and practice and, you know, have a skill set and work at it. And then love, we're just like, oh, well, when you miss 
magically meet this like this right person right it'll all just work out and anybody who's been divorced knows that's not true right like wait a second I thought and I think really putting more love out in the world is letting people know that just because you learned about love in your family of origin in a particular way you're not stuck with that forever you're really not like you can actually have a new experience of love that changes everything because it's an inner experience that changes your outer world your inner shift changes your outer world experience because what we really believe to be true about us all of those limiting beliefs are tied up into this idea of our strategies for giving and, and receiving love i agree with that how has your definition of love changed it's interesting. You know, we call the work we do love on purpose because love is a conscious choice. It's something you have to actually choose to do. You have to consciously think kind thoughts towards the person that you're living with every day. You have to constant consciously choose to be loving in your communication. It doesn't just happen because you're with this person who is, is really great in the beginning. I mean, we know science tells us that when we fall in love, we are flooded with chemicals, right? We're flooded with dopamine and, and all these feel-good chemicals, oxytocin, yeah. right? all these things. It's like we're high on heroin when we're falling in love. <laughs> and we think we have this kind of belief inside of us that says that that feeling should last forever. If we truly love this person, that crazy feeling should always be there. And that's crazy thinking, right? It's because, a delusion. Because we can't walk around high every day of our lives. We just don't. And eventually those chemicals wear off. And we end up in a hangover. And that hangover is, you know, a lot of people talk about the five stages of relationship, right? That first stage is the romance stage. Well, the second stage is the power struggle stage. And think about that. It's like, oh, we go from romance to power struggle. Oof. Ouch. It's and harsh. It, it can be a harsh landing for people. Yeah. I want to answer your question. It's such a great question. I, that's like one of the best questions I think we've ever been asked. How's your definition of love change? And I'm going to say that definitely I agree with Matthew 100%. And I would say that love being a choice, Matthew and I have a phrase in our relationship that we practice a lot, which is, I love you anyway. <laughs> right? I love you anyway. Because this idea that you're always going to feel something for a particular person or at, at a particular time, like our feelings change. They're constantly evolving and changing. Our feelings are important because they let us know what's going on with us, right? Like if you twisted your ankle and I was like, oh, Rena, how's your ankle feeling, right? But I just asked, hey, how are you today? How are you feeling, right? Those are the same things. And so just like the ankle, if you twisted your ankle, it's like your feeling state gives you information about what's going on with you right now. It's kind of like your internal compass. And so when you start to really be more kind and loving with yourself spills over, right? When you can love yourself as imperfect as you are, it spills over. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect at it. Like as a recovering perfectionist, I just want to get it out there. You don't, none of this has anything to do with being perfect. Like literally none of it at all. Like when we really love somebody, we don't love things that are perfect about them. We love their quirky little traits or their silly little, I don't know, whatever, right? Like these little imperfections, we fall in love with their uniqueness that makes them so special to our heart. And yet we're so hard on ourselves that we're trying to achieve this idea of something that we'll never have, which is being perfect. And so we like to say like human beings are perfectly imperfect. So when you practice that with yourself first, so that you can, it can spill over so that you can fall in love with another imperfect person. So when you start seeing their imperfections, you know, it's like you found that person at the as is section at Ikea, like, oh, I'm getting a deal on this, man. And I don't even have to assemble it. Like it's got a ding and a scratch. I don't care. I'm going to take it home and love it. That's beautiful. I love that approach. That's really cool. I love the, I'll love you 
I love you anyways. That's cute. That's a great line. That's even a good line for children. I want to talk a little bit about you're not trying to change each other and how the focus really should be on changing yourself. And I feel like maybe a contention point in relationships or even in dating could be the I like him except. Right. So many people, it's like, I like him except, right? And then when we get married, then I'm going to focus on fixing that thing I don't like. Exactly. It tends to work out, right? It's like, yeah. we go, okay, I'm going to put a pin in that. And then once I get the ring on, we're going to make sure we fix that thing. And it's like that, when we talk about the power struggle, that's the ultimate idea of the power struggle, because the power struggle says, no, my way, I need you to see things the way I see them, or I need you to do things the way I do them, or I need you to agree with my interpretation of what's going on here. It's all an ego power struggle that says my way, my way, my way. And the other person's like, no, 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 my way, my way, my way. And then we're, we're pulling on a rope. And the way to get through that, the way to get past that idea and that way of thinking is to say, instead of fighting for me in my way and you to agree with me and all that stuff, you choose to fight for the relationship. You say this thing that we've created, we always say the the bad relationship math is, is not one plus one equals one, the you complete me story. It's one plus one equals three. Because what happens when two people come together is they create this third entity, you're going to call it the relationship. And you have to make deposits and withdrawals into the relationship. And Some people not- call it sacrifice. And it's not really sacrifice. No. because. Because you can't, you think about it if you're rowing a boat, right? If you're both rowing the boat, sometimes you're both rowing together and it's going smoothly and it feels great. Sometimes that other person's tired, they're stressed, and you're like, I'm doing all the rowing myself right now. And other times you go, you know what? I need you to row. And that's a relationship. That's how we make deposits and withdrawals is we we give and take and we understand that it's sometimes one person is more resourceful in one area and another person's more resourceful in another. And we defer to each other's strengths in those instances. It's funny because when you said fight for the relationship and the third entity, I thought you were going to say God. I was wondering how does God come into play? How does spirituality come into play? How does intuition come into play? That's a great question. As somebody who is very intuitive, I didn't know that I was until I was probably in my 30s. When I think back like to high school, there were like girls that I thought didn't like me. And then I realized they didn't like themselves. And that's what I was picking up on because I see them as grown women and I, and I go, oh, oh, like it lands, you know, it lands so differently. And so the thing I think about intuition is that it, it doesn't function the way people think. Like I would say intuition is like a gift. It's like if we were sitting outside in a garden and a butterfly like landed on you. We'd be holding our breath. It would be so magical. And if the, when the butterfly flew away, we wouldn't be trying to hold on to it. So I know for myself and my own journey of really embracing my own intuition was treating it like a butterfly. So it's like, oh, the butterfly landed. And so if it gives me information that feels useful, I get to use it. And if it doesn't feel useful, which it did for a long time until I really realized, oh, because I didn't, I didn't know how the messages were coming. So there was a lot of confusion in my brain trying to analyze and make sense of things. So I don't think intuition follows a completely non-linear path. It's not linear or logical or binary the way that that big prefrontal, prefrontal cortex works. 
So when you get information, you're like, this doesn't feel useful in this moment. All right, let it go. Because you wouldn't try to hold on to the butterfly. Like, okay, butterfly, go land on someone else. I don't know what to do with that. And then you just trust that if you need that information later, you'll use it. And so I think intuition works like that. I don't think intuition works like we're destined to be together, like with a particular person. I don't think there's one person you have to scour the earth for. When we do live events, sometimes I'll say, when we talk about dating, we talk about dating with non-attachment and we sort of have our clients work with a mantra of like this or better, right? Instead of jumping in too quickly. And I'll say, oh yeah, when I was in the early dating, you know, when I was dating Matthew in the early days, right? Like that was completely my mantra, like this or better. And like the whole audience, like, yeah. They're like, oh, how can you say that? He's right there. He can hear you, <laughs> right? And I'm like, what? Do you, well, yeah, this or better. It doesn't mean I'm upset with this. I love this. This is great. This is awesome. But I didn't know, right? You can't, you don't know. It's like you don't know the end of the book until you get there, you know? And so people are constantly dating like teenagers, jumping in, you know, like the golden bachelor that's on right now. All of these people in their 60s and 70s, they're dating like they're 13 and 14. They literally, it's like they have no dating skills. Well, I just hope I have the feeling, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> the lightning bolt. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. thought it might be different. And that doesn't mean that that romance phase isn't, filled with all of that yummy, gooey goodness, right? It, it is, but we have no other way to say it, right? I can't say, well, back in 2007, Matthew and I chose to love each other, right? You'd be like, what, right? <laughs> we can only say we fell in love and, and we do have good memories about that. And I, it did feel yeah. magical, but I want to say this, like the love we have now, all of these years later, oh my gosh, it's so much better. It has like this depth and breadth and it's just, there's so much love here that doesn't feel tenuous. It feels solid. It feels like it has the roots of an oak tree. It feels like there's this connection between us that's so special. And it doesn't have anything to do with that early kind of infatuation. You know, so many of the people that we work with, they have that experience of meeting somebody and they're like, this is this is my soulmate. This is my guy, right? And then it doesn't work. And they're like, what happened? I met my soulmate and it didn't work out. And and then they get this story <laughs> in their head that, oh my God, I must be fated, right? It must not be meant to be. That's the phrase we hear so often. Oh, love just is not meant to be. And you know, you brought up God and what does God have to do with it? Well, we believe that God isn't up there doling out love to some people and not to other people, right? God doesn't say you get love and you don't. And, and well, you're going to suffer and you're not, right? God's not that's not God's job. God's job is love. That is, in my mind, the definition of God. God is love. And so we get caught up in this idea of wishful thinking about love, about relationship, right? We have all these. And when you said intuition, I think oftentimes people confuse an intuitive response with a wishful thinking and a hopeful desire right? It's like you meet somebody, it's going well, your profiles match up, your the texts are going great, your phone calls are going great. And you go, this is the one, this is going to be the one. And you say, because I know it, because I feel it. But that feeling has hope. It has all the, the hidden desires in it. It has all of you trying to make it happen inside of there. And I don't think that's what intuition is, right? Intuition isn't this confirmation of what I want. Intuition is information that is true. And it comes to you sometimes in a way that's like, huh, oh, I didn't expect that. But it's a knowingness. Intuition is a knowingness, a truth about something. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, it doesn't have hope in it because it comes from a truth, if that makes any sense. How did you guys know? 
Well, since we're talking about parents today, I, I'll tell it. Matthew met my entire family in the CVICU unit, Tarzana Hospital. My mom had had four heart attacks in three days and lived to tell the tale. And through that whole ordeal, Matthew and I were there at the hospital and we were supposed to get talk to the doctor. And we were the ones sort of in charge of getting information that day. And we were waiting to talk to the doctor and we were sitting in my mom's room. And then the nurse called us to the nurse's station. And, you know, it's like a U, right? It's like a horseshoe and the rooms are all around and the nurse's station in the center of the room. And while we were waiting for her to relay the info from the doctor and vice versa and all that, this man in one of the rooms nearby, like every minute or so he would yell, he'd be like, help. And she just never, it's like, she didn't even hear him. And so after three or four times, Matthew says, I, I think he needs some help. And she, she just goes, oh, he does that all the time. And then we have this whole thing with the doctor and seeing my mom. I mean, it was like an hour, yeah. hour and a half later when we left. And you know, when you go into the CV, the cardiovascular unit, there's those big double doors, right? So you, there's like that. So Matthew, at the end of the, the night we were leaving and we went through that first set of double doors, they open. And now we're in the in-between waiting for the next set to open. And he grabs my hand and he says, don't ever let that be me. And I think at that moment, I knew we'd be together forever. That's beautiful. Wow. That gave me chills. Yeah. It was really special. Oh, that's sweet. I love that. I think on some level I knew right away. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's the right answer, honey. <laughs> you know, we, we met in a business networking group and there was this one particular meeting. They had meetings all over Los Angeles and there was one that was in West LA and it was a breakfast meeting on Friday mornings. And we were both on something called the welcoming committee, which meant we hosted our own table. And so we never sat at the same table and never really talked to each other. It was a big group, right? And so we went to this same meeting for a year and never talked to each other. And That's then so LA. Yeah. Yeah. And then one day, Orna, for some reason, isn't on the welcoming committee and she sits at my table and we're all going around talking about, you know, we do our little 30 second, who are you and what you, what do you do and all of that. Orna says like five times, well, I'm very intuitive and I use my intuition in my work. And there was like this light bulb, like shining above her head. And I just went in my head. I just thought I need to talk to this woman. I just really need to talk to her. We set up a, you know, through the phone, we set up a one-on-one -on -one networking breakfast where we met at Solly's <laughs> Deli in the Valley. We spent two, maybe three hours talking. And I don't think we talked about business at all. We talked about our lives. We talked about each other. We talked about the intersection because we both worked in entertainment before we left that world and got into personal growth. That was really what we talked about. And then, you know, we were there so long that they had cleared the table and then somebody came with menus to get take our lunch order. And then we we get out to the parking lot. We spent another 45 minutes in the parking lot trying to say goodbye to each other. I got to go. I got to go. And then we talk some more. And I think from that day on, I think I knew on some level. I don't think it became conscious until later, but part of me was like, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I'm just going to say when Matthew called me, like right out of the handbook from the networking group, like, hello, this is Matthew Walters. I'd, I'd like to do some one-on-one -on -one networking with you so I could better refer business to you. And my response was, oh, Matthew, I'm in the middle of a bunch of things. Can I get your number? I'll call you back. And I didn't because I was busy. And so a week later, he called again. And I just want to say that for all those people that think, oh, it just magically happens. Like I was like, I, you know, I, I intended to call him back. I kept the little memo pad where I kept, wrote down his name and number. I'm very sentimental, but I didn't know. I had no idea. So he called and I was like, oh, I'll get back to you. And then when a week went by and he called again and I answered and he was like, oh, it's Matthew. I was like, oh, Matthew, I'm so sorry. And that's when we set up the, the breakfast. I just think it's important for people to know that you can't screw it up with the right person. Like people oh. are so 
afraid to get it right. And I just tell people all the time, like if we could spend hours talking about all the things that went wrong, but we figured it out together. You're going to figure it out with the right person. So you don't have to be, you know, watching yourself with guardrails, you know, really be unapologetically you. Like how, how me could I be? Like I'm in the middle of a bunch of things. Can I call you back? <laughs> I love that. I really feel like too, in the beginning of a relationship, are you really able to be yourself? Are you really able to not play any games? That's where the right. practice comes in and you practice through the dating process. Everybody wants to rush from the dating into exclusivity and into the sack. And when you delay that, and we're not saying delay it because we live in 1950, we're saying delay it so your brain doesn't go offline, right? So that you get to evaluate yourself through the dating process and discover things about yourself. And I want to say this, the biggest misconception people make about communication is they judge the success of their communication based on the response they get from the other other person. Please stop doing that. Everybody listening, please stop. Because there's only one way to assess your the, the quote success of your communication. And that's by how authentic you're able to be. And that's it. That's the only measure. So you don't have to downplay the things that are really upsetting. And you don't have to make a big deal out of something that it's not. But most people walk around downplaying because we get these ridiculous colloquialisms, right? Like we're told all the time, like, oh, pick your battle. Like, I, I hate that one a lot because I'm not at war with my husband. I don't have to pick up my battle. If I'm upset a little bit, we get to clean it up so it doesn't turn into this big landmine we stumble into one day when there's that little thing and the next little thing and the next little thing and the next one, and then you can't take it anymore. And then, ah, right? I don't want that. So let's just clean as we go. How is the love that you have found different than the love on reality TV? Oh, gosh. Well, the love on reality TV is a fantasy. It really is. Because what they do in those shows is they put people in extreme situations, which heightens their adrenaline. And we know this. We know that if you want to bond quickly with someone, either create a lot of excitement or a lot of danger, you're going to naturally connect and bond with that person. You can't help but do it because that's the way the human system, the human body works, right? That's the way our emotions work. And so like the Golden Bachelor, there's all these upcoming episodes of them in, in a balloon and them, you know- Hot air balloon. Hot yeah. air balloon and them rappelling off a cliff and and all of these things are, they're great at creating a bond. Now, whether that bond means that's a real bond between two people who can really have shared values and can work through difficulties together, or whether it's just the chemical high of the experience and you're both experiencing the same thing. You know, years ago, I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat. And that sounds really extreme, but it was actually really powerful. And there's all these strangers. There's literally like 100 people, 150 people, and they're all strangers. And you, you have maybe two hours to talk before everybody goes into silence. So you don't really know anybody. What was amazing was when we all came out of silence, we all felt like we knew each other on some deep soul level. It's like we felt a connection to each other because we had this shared experience. We could have a shared language and a shared communication about that shared experience. But it doesn't mean that these people are now lifelong friends, that these people are somebody, <laughs> you know, that you're going to form a long bond with because that bond was temporary and it came out of the event. I think also one of the big differences 
between what not only between our relationship but our clients and their relationships right we've been doing this a long time we have love on purpose teenagers right we have clients that have gotten married have babies and those kids are now teenagers and we do this a long long time and one of the things that happens on reality tv constantly are people bonding over their wounds and it happens in an irl too in real life right irl everybody's walking around sharing oh you know what do they what do you do on a first date when you meet from a, an app right you sit down and you go well what's your dating horror story what's your night nightmare story what you know they bond it's so weird and so that is not what you're looking for you want to bond instead over your dreams and goals because what creates longevity in relationships there's two things that have to be there one is chemistry but chemistry is a checkbox so like do I want a humming a humming a yummy yummy this person right like do I want that check okay that's that's all it's just a tick box and then the rest of it is what you discover over time is do you have shared values and shared values is what creates that longevity. But the thing about values, you have to get to know somebody because you can't have a conversation about values. Right? Like if I ask you, Rena, do you value honesty? What are you going to say? Like I lied to you three minutes ago? No, nobody's ever going to pony up to that, right? So there's no conversation about what are your values. It's something you discover over time by paying attention. That's why when you want to keep your brain online through the dating process and not rush to that physical intimacy. So you can evaluate how are you showing up? How's the other person showing up? What's the dynamic between you? Not just when it's going good, but when there's miscommunication, when they're, oh my gosh, a conflict, right? Like if you spend your whole time dating, avoiding conflict, you'll never find the right match for you. Because when you share a life with somebody, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have that miscommunication. You're going to have that tug of war, power struggle stage. You're going to have, so you need to know that you can overcome those things. You know, when it goes south, you have to know that you're able to get back on the same page with this person. You're going to have to know that that person is still respectful, even when they're upset, right? Respectful love has a boundary. And most people, when they do come from families that have, you know, unhealthy situations and toxicity and all of that, there are no boundaries. It doesn't even have to be all that toxic or unhealthy to not have boundaries. A lot of families don't like family sometimes equates no boundaries. So if you're somebody that didn't learn healthy boundaries, that's something you're going to have to figure out before you decide to really partner up with somebody for life because there are healthy boundaries, right? Respectful love means I can't do anything to Matthew. I mean, I love him with every fiber of my being, but it's not acceptable to do anything to him. That's the kind of home I grew up in. I grew a home filled with abuse, right? Where I love you, man, I could literally beat you or belittle you or mock you while you're opening your birthday gifts. Not good. How did you overcome that? I'm tenacious. <laughs> I'm so tenacious. When I decided I really wanted a great love relationship, I mean, I, I tried to avoid it. I said that already. But then I was like, okay, how do I how do I do this? Because I realized very quickly that I didn't know how to do it. And really nobody knew what to do with me. You know, it's like I show up and they're like, you know, oh, I can help you. And then they're like, oh my gosh, there's all this other stuff I didn't know. My mom's a Holocaust survivor. Like, whoa, the minute I mentioned that, forget about it. They're like, they literally, nobody knew what to do with me. Like these experts, these supposed experts, I really tried a lot of different things. There wasn't one thing, but I think I spent a lot of time trying different things. And I took a little from here and a little from there. It was like a, a buffet and I cobbled together a bunch of stuff. I mean, there was one year where in 2000, I decided to do, I started doing triathlons in the year 2000. And those are hard events. And I was a swimmer. I was never a runner. And so I, was, I would look at the run distance. I'm like, could I survive the run? You know, and most people are the other way around. They come from like the marathon world and then they're terrified of the swim. I love the swim. 
swimming, great. Biking, I could survive. The run, oh, that was hard. And I like made this little, right out of the Louise Hay, you know, the You Can Heal Your Life, that foundational Louise Hay book that I had found. And I made up this little affirmation song about that, that I love and approve and accept myself. And so I was training for hours and hours and hours. And I would sing my little song, my little I love and approve and accept myself song. And all of these what seemed like miraculous and magical things started happening. And I was like, what? And I had to trace, I didn't even know what it was. Like, I, I was like, what, what changed? You know, it was like, almost like being in a laboratory. What's the element that changed? My inner dialogue had changed. My inner dialogue had changed so much. So instead of having this high bar I can never meet of being perfect and doing everything just right. I mean, I think every team member we've ever had in our business knows the saying, well, it just sucks not being perfect, right? <laughs> like, you're going to screw things up and you just go, you, you know, you just got to kind of love and approve and accept yourself anyway. Yeah. You got to love and approve and accept yourself anyway. So yeah. I changed my inner dialogue was a huge, huge, huge part of it. Such a huge part of it. So many people, you know, make fun of the idea of affirmations and sort of mock this idea. But the truth is, we're affirming our reality every minute of every day, whether we're conscious of it or not, right? We make mistakes. And we're going, oh, it's so stupid. Why do you keep doing that? That's an affirmation. You're affirming your own stupidity or your own lack of self-worth. We're doing that constantly to ourselves anyway. And so if you're walking around affirming your reality, you should choose something that feels useful, that feels helpful to you, that makes you feel good about yourself, as opposed to makes you feel bad about yourself. Is it true that women marry their dad and men marry their mother? <laughs> I think that one's a little too cookie cutter. We're so much more complex than that. I mean, both, if you grow up in a home with both parents and siblings, all of it's a family dynamic that has an effect on how you select a partner. But if, even with an absent parent, the absence of that parent will definitely create part of that, what we call your love imprint. So your love imprint is a phrase that we coined to sort of explain this false positive that people get, right? We all now know what a false positive is, having been through the pandemic, except for there weren't that many false positives. We got a lot of false negatives over the last three and a half years, right? A lot of false negatives. So a false positive is like what we've been talking about. Oh, I met my soulmate, but it didn't work out. Oh, I thought. So it's like this idea of that feeling is supposed to let you know it's the person, but the feelings don't last. So there has to be more than that right? The only feeling you're looking for is that checkbox, the chemistry, right? So I think it's just so much more complex. So I don't think there's that cookie cutter thing of you could, your, you know, girls marrying their father or boys marrying their mother. And I'm sure Matthew has a much more eloquent way of saying <laughs> everything I just... <laughs> well, you want to think about it this way. When we're little children, we have a desire about how we want to be loved. And then there is the capability of our parents of giving us love. And there's a gap between these two things, right? The kid says, well, if you would just do this and this and this and this and this, I would feel loved. And the parent's like, well, this is how I express love. So that's how you're getting it. And in that gap, that child takes on a limiting belief about themselves because children have this weird way of taking full responsibility for their experience. And what we mean is that it goes like this. Instead of saying, well, gee, mom, that's not really helpful. What would be great is if you gave me a hug and told me you love me and everything would be okay. Right. Instead, we say, what is wrong with me that my mom is behaving this way? What's wrong with me that my dad is behaving this way? And we take on this limiting story about ourselves. I think it'd be great if we, we gave an example. So we had a client who early on in her childhood, her dad was diagnosed with this very intense sort of heart condition and he, rare. very rare heart condition. And he would just regularly end up in the ICU from it. And they were never sure if he was going to live or die. 
And so for her, there was always this sense of uncertainty about the world. And yet at the same time, she had a mother who was very, very conscientious of what other people thought of them. So she was like, we have to behave a certain way and be a certain way in the world. We have to present ourselves in a certain way, because that says that we're happy, successful people, right? And so she took on this piece from her mother of, I have to present as very happy and successful and, and turn things to the positive. And yet underneath it is this sense of uncertainty about the world. And so she would look to others for affirmation of certainty. Now, what's fascinating is that little cocktail of traits made her very susceptible to controlling narcissistic men. They create that feeling of uncertainty and yet at the same time, they're like trying to tell her who to be and how to be. And part of her brain is like trying to please because that's what she was taught. And so there's this weird cocktail that, because like she didn't grow up with any narcissism in her family. And yet her ex-husband and when she came to us, the fiance she had just broken up with were both controlling narcissists. Yeah, she reached out to us after she ended the second very significant relationship. Like the marriage had long, been long over and now she was engaged to somebody where she realized, wait, I'm in the same place again. He's a narcissist. How did I do this? And when she recognized the pattern, that's when she called us. Because essentially that's what people know us in our industry. They know us as the pattern identifiers and breakers. And when people, a lot of times people reach out and they're not even sure why we're on the phone and they're like, well, I don't know. All my, all my boyfriends are different, right? All my girlfriends are different. Like, I don't, I don't know what you mean by what's the pattern. And we want to say, if you're listening to us right now, you are the common denominator in all of your relationships. And I remember back getting Harvell Hendricks. He's known, really well known for all the couples work. But I remember getting his book for singles, which I think recently came back into reprint. It, it went out of print for a while. I had it originally back in like the 90s or something. And it was called Keeping the Love You Find. That was the book for singles. And I remember this questionnaire that took forever to answer. Like, I mean, there were like, I was like, okay, I'm done. And then I turned the page. Oh my God, there's more questions. So it was all about uncovering all this stuff about you. But one of these things was a relationship history and then to look for the commonalities. And I remember going back when I first did the book and it was like all of the guys that I was pining for and heartbroken over, they were unavailable, either literally unavailable, like paired up with someone else or emotionally unavailable, which is an addict, right? And so I was like, unavailable, 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 unavailable. I was like, oh, that's the pattern. We have this misconception all the time where people reach out and they're like, why am I attracting, you know, X kind of guy, fill in the blank with X, right? X kind of guy, right? Yeah, why like what about the people who live in the past and they want to like track down people on Facebook from high school? <laughs> <laughs> they are living in the past. Oh my gosh, we've heard from those too. It's like they have, they think it's like the one that got away, but it's a false thing. They think if they could, because again, they're walking around this myth that you need this one person and they missed out on that one chance for happiness. And look, there are couples, we hear these stories all the time of people that reunite after many years and great, that's awesome. But you also hear a lot of people that don't struggle. So we're going to say, look, if you're over 35 and you haven't figured it out on your own yet, then you probably need a little tinkering, you know, up here. 
you need a little tinkering for that, right? Because it doesn't just, there are some, there's a small percentage of them, right? Like there's a small percentage of people that win the lottery, right? <laughs> what are you going to do? Spend all your money on the lottery? No, right? So if you want to get your love life right, there's skills to be practiced. And so you want to know what your pattern is. It really is all about what are you attracted to? Not, it's not like somebody has a mag, it's not like I had a magnet inside of me attracting all these unavailable people. My mind was highlighting those unavailable people because I grew up in a home where nobody was really emotionally available to connect with, even though that's what I really wanted. So you get how the familiar piece for me was not getting the love I want. Ooh, that was charged. That was my false positive. You know, in my family, it was actually very different. It was very traditional Midwestern family. My parents were married for 57 years until my when my mother passed away. All the neighbor kids would always look to our family and say, well, that, you know, you guys seem to have a really great family, right? Really great family environment. But the dynamic inside my family was one where the only emotions that were ever expressed were anger and sarcasm. And people would tease you constantly. And the teasing was their way of saying, I love you. But I was the youngest of five. So I was born into this environment of teasing. And what I kept hearing as a little child over and over again is there's something wrong with you because we're teasing you. There's something wrong with you because you're teasing you. So I internalized this whole belief system that there's something wrong with me. And how that showed up in my adult relationships was that I was attracted to rejection. I was attracted to women who were like, yeah, I don't know. Right. And the woman who was like, wow, you're really great. You're really cute. I'd be like, eh. It doesn't feel right. It just didn't feel right to have somebody really into me. It felt like there was something wrong. And when somebody was like hot and cold, I was like, oh yeah, that feels right. That's what I'm used to. That's the internal feeling of what I experienced love in my family of origin. And it wasn't until I recognized that. And there was actually a woman I dated the summer before I connected with Orna that really solidified the whole thing. She would be like, really come on really strong. And then the next day we'd be on the phone and she'd be like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work. And then I'd talk her into it and we'd, we'd go out a few more times. And then she'd be like, you know, I was talking to my chiropractor and I think if you spent a lot of time in the gym working out, I mean, you have a body that could really put on a lot of, you'd look really good, right? And it's like that little, just these subtle rejections over and over and over again. It was like candy to my subconscious mind. And it wasn't until I just, in the middle of that whole situation, I woke up and I went, oh, here I am chasing rejection again. And suddenly I was done. I was like, oh, I'm so done with this woman. I don't even need, you know, it was like the, the, the spell was broken. And then early on when I started dating Orna, and I, I don't know, this was a couple of weeks in, I was at her place, she was making dinner and we were just talking about our days. And I made some self-deprecating comment about myself, right? And what did you say? Oh, I said something like, wait, don't say something like, I like this guy. Don't say something mean to yourself. Like, be nice to yourself. You're perfect exactly as you are. And for the first time in my life, I didn't in my head argue. Because what I would used to do is when I met a girl who's like, you're really great. I'd be like, yeah, wait till you get to know me. You'll you'll see. You won't like me so much down the road. And it's breaking that pattern, breaking those spells that we're stuck in bringing awareness to our own emotional stories about love. So when you think about that person who's pining for their high school sweetheart, right? It's on some level, love is a fantasy that isn't real. And so they're chasing this fantasy 
because they have a fantasy of what it was. And when you're 16 or 18, I mean, it's all chemical. You don't know. It's so not many hormones. It's not about, you know, <laughs> is this person a really good match? Do we share values? Do we want the same life 30 years from now? Yeah. No, it's chemical that we're feeling. I, what I think is interesting when you ask me, like, what did I say, right? Yeah. That day. What I think is funny is I was just reflecting back to him, my inner work, what I have been doing and telling myself that I don't have, you know, that I'm perfect as I am. Like, I don't have to change. I don't have to be something else. I don't, I mean, I, I think I was very much a people pleaser for most of my life. And at some point in the, in all of that shifting, I realized that, oh, actually I can't make everybody happy. The only person I actually have control over making happy is me. So if I make me happy, then I can spread that light and spread that joy. And I was literally just reflecting that back to Matthew when I heard him make that self-deprecating comment. It was like, it landed so weird. I was like on my ears because I was like, no, 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 no. Like I, I kind of wanted to say like, not on my watch. You know what I mean? Like you got to be nice to yourself. And he made the shift. And it was so interesting to watch him make the shift and like take that little, that he took that little piece that I gave him and it was like, oh, okay, got it. I could, I could do that. And I oh, okay. And we just sort of kept paddling together, you know? It's interesting because you say he made the shift, but when I heard him tell that story that he used to like a little bit of rejection, I'm thinking to myself, do you ever like try to keep him guessing? <laughs> no, no. She doesn't actually. At least not she intentionally. Constantly, she tells me every day how much she loves me. She I constantly do. lets me know how loved I am. That's what we really want. We all want to be loved for who we are. And yet we're terrified to show up as who we are. We're I, terrified to just be authentically ourselves. We call it pretzel twisting. Yeah. How many different ways do we twist into a pretzel to say, do you like this shape? Do you like this shape? I can How are that. you going to like me? I could be like, I could be the person you want to love. What are you looking for? I what can are you do that. For I can me? do that. I mean, I think we took it to the extreme the other way, where at one point I remember, this was years ago, and Matthew said something like, you know, I ought to be able to burn the house down and you should be okay with it. And I was like, dude, you know what? If you burn the house down, I'm not leaving you. But you're like saying, if you burn the house down, I should be happy about it. Like, I'm tell you right now, I'm not going to be happy if you burn the house down. That's not a thing. I will definitely not be happy, but I'm not leaving you over it. Like there's a line here, you know, <laughs> like expecting me to be happy about these things. And then we just, you know, we go back to the, I love you anyway. I mean, it, it really, I think we took it the other direction than what you were thinking. It's like, it's just a full on accepting of what is, because you have to look at what is, when we look at what's here between us, there's so much more good than those little hiccups that are, you know, quote unquote bad or whatever, or challenges. But every single one of those hiccups happens so that we can reconnect and get even more, more connection, right? It's like the, the key that skill set for lasting love is about knowing how to take a conflict and turning it into a deeper connection. And that's how love grows over time. When we hear all the time, right? Oh, somebody gets divorced. Yeah, I'm talking about a while. Oh, what happened? Oh, we just grew apart. Like, what do you mean? Gravity? What? You know, I mean, it wasn't an accident. It's like at some point, two people stopped trying to make it work out or they didn't have the skills. Because that skill to be able to take responsibility, you know, when we have a conflict, we take a pause and we separate. We we each take time to calm our own nervous system. And when we come back together for the repair, we take responsibility. So we don't start with the you, we start with I. We start with an apology. I'm sorry, I did X, Y, and Z or whatever, right? And the other person, oh, I'm sorry, I did X, Y, and Z. Okay, that's where we start from. And I think it's so weird because people are constantly, they don't want to look in the mirror and take responsibility, but you're the only person you have control over. 
Like, I love this guy, but I don't have control over him. I, I can't make him do any, like, nothing, you know? I mean, I think most wives even buy socks and underwear for their husbands. I cannot. He, will, he has to buy his own clothes. I'm like, whatever, dude, that's his thing. I don't, sure. You know, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to get your spouse to do something. I'm like, what? <laughs> that's not a thing over here. You know, this is really about being conscious about what, I mean, I know living with me every day, I'm not, there's no perfection. The standard is lowered to just being okay with what is and fixing things as we go. That's our agreement. We get asked all the time, what's a soulmate relationship? Well, a soulmate relationship are two people that choose each other and they continue to choose each other. <laughs> every day. Every day. Has the D word ever come up? Like divorce? No, no. We knew what you meant by the D word, but okay, no, not a thing. I, I mean, mean, we've had some. You know, we're both very challenging times. We're both very passionate <laughs> people, and we're both strong-minded people. And so sometimes, you know, the tug of war, you know, can get pretty intense. But when we both calm down and we both look at what's really going on, if you're not connected to yourself, then you're not connected to your partner. And if you're not connected to each other, you're going to have misunderstanding. You're going to have disagreements. But if you're connected to yourself, meaning you know what's going on with you, you know how you feel, and you're able to go, okay, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling anxious today. Okay. But when I'm anxious, I can get a little controlling because, you know, I like to try to control my environment. It makes me feel more safe. Well, okay. So if I start trying to control Orna and she's like, look, you know, don't control me. Try, you know, whatever <laughs> you're doing. I don't know what you're That's doing. What Stop saying. managing me. Stop right? managing me. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can, I can recognize it instead of saying, no, I need you too, so that I can feel safe because that's the mistake we make. We all say, I need you to behave a certain way so that I can feel safe. But the other person's not responsible for that feeling. You are. You're the one who's responsible for saying, oh, I'm feeling anxious today. Yeah. And that's why her behavior is really getting to me. And I'm trying to control that because if I can control that, I'll feel better. And if I let go of controlling that, then I can actually deal with what's going on inside of me. I think the toughest year we've ever had together was 2015. We had a lot of loss. And Matthew's mom passed away in 2014. And then my soulmate, Kitty Cat, left us. It was so hard. Like, I literally told Matthew, like, I don't know who I'm going to be when she goes. I always say she taught me more about love than any other person. Because she was like a person in a cat suit. And when we got married, I had a lawyer friend draw up, like, adoption paperwork and legally that Matthew was adopting her. And she took the last name Walters. And it was super cute. But in 2015, we just had all this loss. And this is the thing. It is normal. It's normal human behavior when you're not resourceful and under a lot of stress to revert to old strategies. I don't care how evolved you are. I mean, I try to be someday. I, I hope that I'll be an enlightened master one day, maybe. But in the meantime, I'm going to settle with just being human and know that sometimes I'm not resourceful and I'm going to revert back to old strategies. So we got stuck in this really wicked fight cycle in 2015. And it was one of these things where we just started having fun with it, you know, like at mid argument at one point, like I looked at Matthew and I was like, you know what? I know what you're going to say. And you know what I'm going to say. So let's change lines. Like you say my lines and I'll say your lines and let's see what we figure out. And we tried all kinds of stuff. We like to call it like changing our dance step. We were in this fight cycle and Matthew is so cute because I have so many abandonment issues that he was like, I'm not going anywhere. He's like, I don't care if we have this fight every day. We weren't fighting every day, but he's like, I don't care if we have this fight every day. I'm not going anywhere. And I like laughed because I was like, I'm not having this fight with you as often as we are, much less every day. Like we're going to figure it out. And one of the things I realized for me to make an adjustment was there were just like certain things that was like bugging me and a lot like about just the dynamic of the day in and the day out. 
And it was definitely a resurgence of that power struggle stage. And I remember thinking, you know, what would have to change for him to be, you know, a little bit more considerate or whatever, right? And I remember thinking, oh, if Matthew was going to be more like me, he would have had to have the tumultuous, chaotic childhood I had grown up with. I'm like, I wouldn't wish that on a stranger, much less my beloved husband. And suddenly I realized, oh, this is mine. This is not like my hyper conscientiousness comes from, I better get it right or somebody might hit me. And that's actually not normal. Like Matthew's family, I would say I won the in-law lottery. And so, you know, when he's sitting on the couch he, and watching TV, he's totally relaxed, you know? <laughs> Whereas sitting on the couch in my family, you never knew what was going to set somebody off. I was never totally relaxed, right? And I was like, oh, this is an unrealistic expectation. And I can actually fix this inside of me so that I really let that last piece of that go and not be so concerned about how my behavior is going to land with somebody else and just feel perfectly safe and comfortable. It sounds like you guys have seriously done some work on yourselves and you all did get married later in life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were both over 40. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we always joke that the reason we became experts in this field is because we both pretty much made every mistake you can make in relationship. I mean, I discovered years later, we were actually talking to a college friend of mine and she was asking advice about her, her boyfriend at the time. And she sort of stopped mid sentence. And she goes, I can't believe I'm getting advice from the guy I used to refer to as the toxic bachelor. And I was like, there was this moment because she had never said that to my face. And I realized, oh, she'd said that to a lot of people that we both knew. I was like, huh. And then I looked back and I kind of was that toxic bachelor. I was very much was the guy who was like in and then out and in and then out and like all these mixed signals and all that behavior because I was conflicted inside of myself. And it wasn't until I got clear and really did do a lot of personal growth work and really got clear that I was the source of my own happiness. And once I was on that path that I went, oh, actually, I think I want a relationship. I actually think I could be married because when I was in my 20s and my early 30s, I thought, there's no way I want to be married. That's That doesn't feel fun at all. And that's because I was unhappy. And I started sort of figuring out, well, how can I be happy? How can I just be happy? I remember I was in high school and we had a, a psychology class and the teacher at the end of the year, it was, we were all seniors and it was like, it was like, what do you want from life? And I would say like, a good 50 to 60% of the people in my class said, I want, I just want to be happy. And I remember as a kid thinking, really, that's all you want from life? You just want to be happy? What, what's wrong with you? I want to do this. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And then in my 30s, I went, oh, no, they had it right. I just want to be happy. And once I was on that path, and then I thought, now that I'm feeling happy, I actually want to share this with another person. And so I went looking for a partner. And what we teach so many women is that a man who wants a relationship and is ready for a relationship behaves very differently than a man who's on a dating app for companionship or sex or whatever other thing he's on there for. And that the signals are obvious if you're just paying attention and you're not trying to make this guy who's not a good match for you trying to get him to behave in a certain way, right? Trying to get him to commit, trying to get him to move the relationship forward. You can't make a man do something like that. You sit back and the men who want a relationship will call you for a second date, will invite you to meet their friends, will say, hey, a month from now, there's this concert. I want you to go with me, right? They'll introduce you to their family. They'll move the relationship forward because they found somebody who they think they want to do that with. I never had to ask Matthew, where is this going? 
Like never, I never had to ask him that. He showed me every step of the way that he wanted a relationship with me. That's nice. And I, I agree. I think that's how it should be. Have you read the book? He's just not that into you. Oh, um, I haven't read the book. I think you watched the movie, the movie yeah, version of it. Much, no, Greg, you know, this whole idea of chasing, that was me. I was constantly pining for the unavailable. So I was constantly pining for the guy that didn't want me. It evolved, right? I evolved over time. Like my boyfriends before Matthew are great guys are great men. Most of them are married and happy. And, and that's great. Just because somebody isn't toxic or abusive doesn't you know, suddenly make them the right match, right? So there were things I had to learn along the way. I had a particular boyfriend for a couple of years. What did I learn? Like, I was kind of look at life like a game board. You know what I mean? Like, okay, if I can mine the relationship for these golden nuggets of learning, it's like rolling the dice. I could take six steps towards my beloved or whatever. And this particular relationship, it took me a long time. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, oh, his family loved one another respectfully. Like the first time I met his mom, she called on a Sunday morning. It was like, I still remember. He's like, uh, my mom just called and um, she's in the neighborhood and she wanted to know if it's okay to stop by. Are you okay meeting my mom today? And I was like, your mom called before stopping by? Like that's a thing? What? (laughs) And that doesn't mean that his family didn't have their dysfunction. Certainly they did. But that piece was a essential for me because when I realized he showed up to show me that I didn't know how to do that, then I got to practice and I got a lot of practice in on learning how to love respectfully so that I could have, you know, this guy. (laughs) I just want to like end on one final thought. What would you tell people who still want love and don't know how to find it? I, the first thing I would say is you're worth loving that just because you've struggled, just because you've had a difficult childhood or a difficult adulthood or whatever it is, there's nothing inherently wrong with you that says you can't get love. And you need to learn the skills for creating love because sex is instinctual, but long-term monogamous relationship is not. It's a social construct. It's something we have learned to create. And it's useful. And I mean, we're proponents of it. We believe in it. But it takes skills to make that last. And so you have to learn those relationship skills. And specifically, you have to look at your own self and say, okay, if I'm the common denominator, what is the thing I need to learn so that I can shift this pattern? And I would say go to www.loveonpurpose.com and a uh, shameless plug, shameless <laughs> self-promotion and everything Matthew said too. But if you want the, if you want to fast track that journey, please come, you know, come to loveonpurpose.com. We have a lot of different ways for you to work with us. We have an award-winning blog with tons of content and a really good search function on the blog. So you can find what you're looking for. And I mean, that's what we do. It's our life's work. And we're here to help people get the love they want, which is a lasting, loving partnership with somebody who gets you and will stand by you. So good. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Orna told me this for years when she would meet a couple that were married for a long time. She would say, she would ask them, what's your secret? So I would love to know from your dad, what's his secret? Mm, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've asked literally for decades. I've asked people when I meet them and be married for a long time, what's their secret? And honestly, my favorite, I keep saying honestly, everything I've said has been honest, by the way. My father-in-law, Matthew's dad, gave me the best answer. When I first met them, it was the year of their 50th wedding anniversary. And um, we were there at Christmas time. And you know, at some point we're going through all the family photo albums and there was the album of the 50th, you know, wedding anniversary party that Matthew was at and blah, blah, blah. 
it just was like organically came up because now it's like I can't wait for you to ask my parents you know so we're going through the album and and so I said wow you know 50 years that's a long time what's your secret and they both looked at each other and then Matthew's mom said something you know of course jokey where she says oh you know when no one else is around we just don't even talk to each other and, and they start laughing and Matthew's dad's like yeah that's right and they're ha 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 and I mean, hours later, it was like four or five hours later, we go to leave their house and we get to the rental car out, outside and Matthew like hits the steering wheel and he's like, great, my parents' secret is they don't communicate. What am I supposed to do with that? And he was like, really mad. And I was like, ooh. And then flash forward, right? Matthew's mom passed in 2014 and we spent an extended time with him. You know, we'd usually, normally we'd go back for little, you know, visits or whatever, but we, we stayed an extended amount of time later that year you know, after the funeral and all that stuff, we carved out some time to spend with him. It was just he and I in the kitchen. And I don't remember how it came up, but I said something like, you probably don't remember, but when I first met, I said, you know, dad, when we first met, I asked, you know, you and mom, what your secret is. And he goes, you did, huh? What did we say? And I told him, he's like, he laughed and he goes, you know, we were joking. And I said, yeah, but now it's been, you know, 57 years. So, you know, I'd like to know what's your secret. And he gave me the, I think the best answer I ever heard. He said, don't hold on to anything. Say what you got to say and then move on. And I was like, oh, that's a good one. That's a keeper. I was thinking silence is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) You did your silent retreat. My husband's done that too. I think a little bit of silence is actually a good thing. (laughs) I think there's, you know, you have to pick your, your moments, you know, what you say when and how you say it. We are absolutely believe that you can say anything to anyone. It's all in how you say it. Yes. I 100% agree with you. I am so glad that you guys are bringing more love into the world. And this conversation I have absolutely loved. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here with you today. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. This is the episode with Orna and with Matthew. What an interesting topic that we all really love to talk about is love itself. And did you like how they feed off of each other, where they're able to really coordinate as well their expression and impressions of things, where it's almost like you're talking to one person and they can each finish each other's sentences. And that may be what part of the equation of love is, too, is that where you really understand and know everything about the other person, where it's really, as Grandpa Abe would say, which one is the better half? It's like they become part of you and you become part of them. A lot of people don't understand that the love game is really, intercourse is nice, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But there's responsibilities with intercourse. And you have to be loyal and committed to whatever happens. And if you're going to do the plunge and do that, you have to understand that you have to be responsible and committed to things that can occur. And having children is a big responsibility. Having a marriage is a big responsibility. And this is called the Better Call Daddy Show because having children is part of our legacy for the future. And if you're going to mess around with your future, you better know what the hell you're doing. And if accidentally your commitment and your loyalty is not real, well, then your future and your legacy isn't real either. What do you think of them apples? That's pretty true. And I do think that both your parents and mom's parents both finish each other's sentences and have become a bit of the same person as well. Well, this is the way I grew up. And believe me, 
I was attracted to many girls. And, you know, part of TV back in the day that I watched TV is before you were born. They used to show these Barbie doll type of girls on commercials and things. I mean, if you wanted to buy a car, there was a beautiful girl with the car. If you wanted to go to the store, there was a beautiful girl at the store right on the, the billboard. If you wanted to go to a travel to a place or to a destination. There was a beautiful girl. So this beautiful figure with nice boobs and blonde hair and blue eyes. Well, I got news for you. That was in all of our minds where everybody wanted to be with a girl like that. But guess what? It's more than just looks, okay? You've got to be able to, this person's got to be your partner, your friend. When things get tough, it's got to be somebody that's going to stand by you. This is a big thing. Commitment and loyalty and responsibilities. This isn't just a, a ride in the park or a ride to a, a show or to take a ride in the car with a beautiful girl. That's all fantasy and, and lipstick. You need somebody that's going to be in the trenches with you. Because life has many twists and turns all along the way. The funny part is, is that because I'm outspoken on a lot of issues, I had just as many fights with girls that I went out with as I did lovemaking. It's nice to have the lovemaking. It's nice to make up. But you've got to be able to get along with your ideology as well. And let's face it, there is a religious barriers also where there's certain people that have religious beliefs that just don't coincide with other people. And if you want to keep your, in our case, that we're Jewish, there's a lot of people that families don't want people to mix with Jewish people. And as I was growing up, there was a lot of bias and a lot of hatred. So you've got to be with somebody also that can absorb that. And in my case, I realized that I really needed to be with a Jewish girl to be able to keep the type of legacy and family where I came from to have that continuum. So when it comes to the secret sauce, you better be committed and loyal and be able to work through the, the travesties of life, the ups and the downs, if you really want your marriage to work. And you can apply that theory or that secret sauce to any relationship, especially even people that you work with or that you want to accomplish anything with, even if you're on a on a sports team or, or on a team that you want, you're trying to win. It can't just be about yourself. It's got to be where you put yourself out for others. And if you do that, you have a chance to win it at whatever you're going to do. I like it. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now. 